we're going to look at uh, the idea of Advent, the first of four sermons uh, this week uh, on the topic of Advent to prepare us for the Christmas season. Okay, and so we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to take a brief break from that and look at uh, four weeks on uh, Advent. And so if you guys would, let's just pray together and then ask God to kind of guide and lead our time. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come together, to wait on you, to think on your word, to reflect, and to worship, God, to say, we want to hear from you. Lord, I pray that uh, the things that I share would be helpful for kids, teens, adults. In some way, one part or all parts of this message would be uh, something that you'd be speaking to our hearts and minds from your word. And so guide and lead our hearing, guide and lead me speaking, and um, use this time together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're, we're going through Advent, and if you don't know what that is, or you're just kind of getting involved with church, so historically the church has uh, done this thing before Christmas called the Advent season, and that's just an opportunity to take a few weeks to prepare our hearts for the Christmas kind of celebration. And Advent is simply a word that means coming, and so the idea is that we are, first of all, celebrating the coming of Christ, that he came in the flesh to this earth, that God was Emmanuel who came here in Jesus Christ, um, but more than that, we're, we're, we're trying to get some substance around the holidays. And in our culture, I don't know about you guys, but I've been super busy leading up to Thanksgiving. It's not going to change going up to Christmas. And I just feel this tension that we have that all of the things that we're going to look at and, and celebrate at Christmas time can get lost in the distraction of this season. And so Advent is a tool that historically the church has used to say, hey, stop for a minute, think about the waiting, the coming of Christ. Look at what's happening. Take a, a longer gaze at the substance of this moment in the, in, the, in, the, in the calendar year. And so we want to set our hearts and minds on the substance. The shadow is great, right? I love the lights. I love the decorations. I love all that. Uh, I've, I've always loved Christmas. And I love when I, I lived in England, we would go to this little village and they'd be singing carols, like a little Dickens classic, you know, it was beautiful. But that's just the shadow, there's something more substantial, and it's hidden in the words of all the great ancient Christmas carols, and it's all around us in our culture. If we stop for a moment and think through what is the season really about, and so we want to uh, really understand this, fix our eyes on Jesus, and then maybe the stress of these holidays will lessen a little bit. We'll go into less debt this Christmas because we'll, our affections will be on the things that they should be on, not on temporal things. Maybe we'll begin to long for Christ this season the way we should. And so hopefully afterwards we won't have the Christmas kind of hangover, not literally, but just the Christmas hangover blues, kind of like thinking through, man, what did I just do? What season did I just walk through? And so we're talking about Advent for the next four weeks and the question to begin with this week is just a simple one. Kids, adults, everyone, what are you hoping for? Okay, what are you hoping for? Christmas season filled, in some senses, with that idea of hope. And that'll be the first week in Advent. Traditionally, and that's what we're going to look at today, is this idea of hope. And I remember when I was a kid, all, the details of all the presents that I was wanting to have. So, for example, and I'm going to date myself a little bit with these, just so you know. But um, I wanted so badly to get a Star Wars Millennium Falcon set when I was a kid. And then my brother got it. And I was ticked off. Okay, I was so upset that my parents had betrayed me to that level. 
that they gave my brother the toy that I wanted, right? And, and that was right when Star Wars was coming out. So again, I've dated myself there. But um, I also remember wanting an Atari game system. Okay, kids, this was the first, like, Nintendo, not Sega, Sega's not even around anymore, um, Xbox, PlayStation, Atari was this little thing with this cartridge and this game Pong, where it's like a little, uh, little stick going up and down and a little rectangle digital ball going and another one, and it's like so much fun to watch you go back and forward, back and forward. Um, and then, I, then one present I really wanted was a dual cassette stereo for my bedroom, like dual cassettes, not just one, two cassette players in the stereo. And if you don't know what a cassette is, again, it's this crazy invention. They would put tape on these rollers, and somehow when it went through there, sound would come out. It was music. It was so amazing. Anyway, so I, you can, I'm sure, remember all of the gifts, if you're older, that you wanted and desired and hoped for. And some of you guys that are here today, teens and kids, you'll remember, like right now, you're like, man, yeah, I've made my list. My parents have got it. It's in their inbox. I've emailed it to them. I've texted them. I've put it on my social, whatever. Like my parents have this in all forms, and I'm hoping for these gifts. <clears throat> Nowadays, I don't really care that much because what I've experienced is that even having kids growing up, I'd give them gifts, and they would play with the box. Um, they would lose toys. A friend would come over and totally smash all their Lego sets, and they would be trashed within a week. And so I have learned to try not to put a 1,000-pound gorilla of debt on my shoulders every Christmas so that I owe a bunch, owe a bunch of people things. And I've learned the, the, the reality that hoping for and longing for uh, in this season, consumer goods is not going to bring satisfaction to my soul. And maybe if you're a kid, you're still learning that, but it's true. Um, and, and, and I want to really quick, as we start today, define this idea of hope that we're looking at. Because hope is, is something that can mean something, to, it means something different to so many people. Like hope, a lot, yesterday, a lot of people were hoping that Ohio State would beat Michigan. Didn't happen. Um, uh, and a lot of people are hoping all sorts of things. I, I, I've hoped for sports teams to win. I've hoped for many things that just don't happen in life. And even confidently hoping in things takes place, but there's no guarantee. So, for example, um, sadly, we have this war going on in the Ukraine right now. And... Uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said this, life must win the war. Values must win the war. Europe must win the war. And we will win. And uh, while I appreciate and like his confidence, I can say this, it's not a guarantee. There, that's not a guarantee. Empires rise and fall, things happen, wars get won by people who shouldn't win them all throughout history. And so I hope that this is true in some sense, but I, I know that, that the world defines hope in a way that only is, I wish I'd get the present, I hope we win the game, all this kind of stuff that is uncertain. And I think that's because that's what we have to offer in our own psychology. Hope is something that we have to have at all times. If you do not have hope, it's, it's a necessity. How can you even get up every single day, get out of bed, show up at this place, show up at work, show up at school if you're a kid? How can you do that if you don't have the hope that something good will take place in that day for you, that something will be a win? Okay, 
the majority of secular thinkers around the time that, uh, of the Bible didn't actually have any hope that was nailed down to anything at all. And this is why later in the Bible it says that people were without hope and without God in the world. And, and they admitted it. They knew that there was no hope that was secure and nailed down, that it was all circumstantial or phantom, and it was not to be ultimately trusted in. And that's hope as it is in the world. And that is not the hope that the Bible talks about when we're going to talk about hope today. Uh, and we're going to do that through the book of Philippians. And the entire Advent series we're going to do in the next four weeks is going to be through the book of Philippians and different verses of Philippians. So you can turn there to Philippians chapter 1. Um, and, and as we get ready for it, the reason I'm, I'm so glad that uh, Tucker and, and John Whitaker, I think, chose this book for Christmas is because Philippians really is like a greatest hits playlist, kind of like your Christmas playlist is coming out, right? You've all heard these verses in Philippians like, hey, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, right? Who's not going to say amen to that? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there's just so many more of those hit verses throughout the book of Philippians. And so we're going to, in one sense, look at Philippians as a playlist for Advent uh, in this series that we're in. And we're going to start in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. And then our main text today will be Philippians 3, 20 to 21. But let me read Philippians 1, 18 to 20, because I think it defines hope for us for the purposes of today. So chapter 1, verse 18 says this, Paul the apostle, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. And then we have that famous verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But we're focusing on verse 20 where Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I mean, listen to the hope that comes through Paul's words there. It's not like, hey, I hope the 49ers beat the Bears. You know, he's saying, he's not saying, I hope it won't rain. He's saying, pulsating with confidence, this is a reality that is going to happen as I stick my neck out and make this statement that God is true. Let every man be a liar. Paul, he is faced in in these verses as we open up Philippians with imprisonment, the threat of death, animosity, provocation. This is what the context of Philippians is. Paul is literally in a prison cell on house arrest. Now, uh, if you've had the opportunity, I I was going to share a picture. I didn't have time to get it up there, but if you've had the opportunity to go to Rome in a place called the Mamertine Prison, it's a prison cell, house arrest with a, a dungeon underneath that is the traditional place of Paul the apostle and possibly Peter being put in jail. And really, it just looks like a house, but then underneath, there's like a little dungeon area, a little light coming through an oculus, and you can kind of see. And so, Paul is here. Imagine him. Think about this. When we talk about hope, and when we see Paul's uh, confident expectation here, we have to ask the question, 
Why is he able to be so clear and so confident in stating this while in chains in a prison cell? You have to ask. This is not us uh, in the privileged position that we sit in today in a warm building in the, in the pleasures of Western society saying, like, I'm sure I'm going to eat a meal for lunch today, right? No, this is Paul in prison in chains saying, I know that no matter what happens, this is going to work out for my good. And that's what he's saying. He, he's saying uh, that ultimately, though in prison, God is going to work it out. Now, the, the word here where he says my deliverance is a word that we just get our word salvation from. And so commentators have kind of debated, is Paul talking about he's sure he's going to get out of jail? Or is Paul talking about the fact that he knows one day he'll be delivered by Christ ultimately in salvation? And I think the answer here, as I've studied, as I understand it, is that both are true in this moment. That in one sense... Paul is echoing the words of Job when, when in Job he says, I'm going to stand before my God one day. When all his friends were accusing him, or in the words of the Psalms, when the Psalms would say, Lord, let not your servant be put to shame. He's saying, when I stand before the court of heaven, when God is my judge, ultimately, whether it's delivered in this situation or whether it's delivered in my eternal justification, God is going to say, you're not ashamed. I was for you. I was with you. You're safe. You're saved. You're delivered. And that's what Paul is saying here. And so prison and a prison cell, I think, is a really appropriate way to start our Advent series. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, a prison cell in which one waits and hopes is and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of, the, of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. You see, Advent starts with this idea that the world from the beginning of biblical history until now, before Christ, and then even after Christ, but specifically before Christ, that is, was in a prison of our own making. Unlike Paul, who's done nothing wrong here, Israel, God's nation, God's people, who he set up perfectly in a house, in a place, in a land for themselves, he, they rebelled against him, though he had nothing but good intentions for them. And as they did, they plunged further and further and further into darkness. Their politics got corrupted. Their religion was vain, hypocrisy, and all this happened. You can see it in the book of Isaiah. And through that, God promises hope. He says there's coming a king. There's coming somebody who's going to come in the Messiah, in the flesh, to deliver. And after Christ, we sit in this same position because the world has not changed. And so we have to ask this question, how was Paul able to do this? It's because he understood hope differently than we understand. It's what the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 6, that hope is like an anchor that's behind the veil in the holy place in God's presence, and it's there, and we are chained to that hope so that nothing can move substantially at all the position that we're in. That is the eager expectation. That is what Paul means. It literally means a stretching out of the neck. It's literally Paul saying, my hope is inseparable from faith. I trust in God. I believe in God. I trust that he's going to deliver me in every possible way. And that's what biblical hope is, is taking the story of God, the promises of God, 
the, and integrating them because you know you've seen him redeem in the past. You know you've seen him redeem in Christ. You know you've seen him redeem throughout history. And it's saying, okay, my human response is to be faithful, that God is full of goodness, and at this present time and in the future, God is going to be trustworthy. You see, this is a completely different kind of hope than the world has to offer. And this is the hope we need. Uh, Gloria said it eloquently and in, in read a scripture from Romans as we started this morning. And, and she said, like, maybe we enter this place hopeless. And that's not a minor thing at all. At all. Because uh, as one person says, when hope dies, that's when anger flourishes. That's when anxiety and despair take place. When hope dies, resignation sets in and you wonder why you even started in the first place. Hopefully you're not experiencing that now, but if you are, you know what I'm saying. Or if you have, you know what I'm saying. And, and sometimes Christmas, to be honest, kind of multiplies that effect. All the stats show that, that there is a heightening of depression, a heightening of suicide, a heightening of people feeling alone, all this kind of stuff. And again, I hope that's not you, but if it is, there is a word for you today. And for all of us, it's a reminder of the deliverance that Christ can bring us. You know, it's such a contrast. We sit here in opulence. Paul sat there in prison. And yet he's able to say, I've got this hope. And many of us have everything we could possibly want in this world, at least compared to the ancient world. And yet we're still dealing with the futility of trying to control things that are so far beyond us. And then that leads to this lack of hope in our lives. So this is why I love Advent. This is why I love the Christmas story because it shows that uh, whether it's Paul in prison or Israel in the Old Testament, God enters into the story in a messed up, tangled, confused, broken world, and he comes for us. So maybe today, as we start, if we define hope this way, you'd say, you know what, I, I hope and I've been hoping in so many other things, and my heart is sick. As, as the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Or maybe you can say, I'm just, I'm hanging on. I'm, I'm just holding on to, to Christ with both hands, and I'm just like, Lord, get me through this season. It's dark for me. Maybe you had a loved one pass away last year. I, I know I did. And so it's a fresh pain and difficulty and grief for you. In this context, we're going to turn to another passage in Philippians in chapter 3, and we're going to look at three anchors for our hope. That hope and pray will encourage you. So turn to Philippians chapter 3 uh, in verse 20 and 21. Uh, we're going to see, and again, I kind of envision it this way, Paul with a chain on his leg, one on his arm, and one on his other arm, three kind of anchors in the ground that's keeping him in that prison, but we actually will have three anchors that were anchored into the presence of God and held to in our hope in Christ, and I hope this will be encouraging to you. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, let's read that together. It says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So the first anchor I want to talk about is just the anchor of our heavenly citizenship. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this first anchor, we're seeing the difference between being heavenly minded and being earthly minded. And there, as I said, opportunities abound in this world right now in the Christmas season to be nothing but earthly minded. And Paul is dealing directly with that in Philippians because what he's speaking to before this verse in verse 20 that we're looking at is he's speaking to those who are false teachers. And he says, actually, their mind is on the things of this earth and they're greedy for gain and their gods are their bellies and they're going to go to destruction. And what he would say, like all the New Testament writers would say, is that the lusts of this flesh in this life do not satisfy the soul and ultimately lead to destruction. That to be uh, unlike what you've heard, you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, to be of heavenly minded is to be of no earthly good. The Bible says the opposite. That to be of earthly minded is of no good and is futile. But to be of heavenly minded is to be of ultimate earthly good. And so... Paul is creating this contrast. There are false teachers who only want for themselves. Just as in our culture at Christmas, there are those of us that struggle with only wanting for ourselves. Kids, I'm sorry, I'm pointing you out. I'm also pointing myself out. Uh, We say, I want this for Christmas. I, I, I want, I want, I want. And we have to actively combat that as Christians. And the reason we have to combat it is because this is exactly what Paul's saying, that the Philippians needed to be an outpost of heaven on earth. He's not just saying, hey, you've got a ticket to heaven, so ride the ride and you'll be good. He's actually saying something very more important, much more important, excuse me. Let me set that by the context here in, in Philippians. Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. Uh, As a Roman colony, it enjoyed a a political status that was different from other places in its day. It was like Little Rome, they called it, in Roman miniature. They had Roman citizenship with many privileges, exempt from paying heavy taxes that other cities paid. They were excused from military service. There's so many things about Philippi that was its own little politic, its own little reality, its own little place as an outpost in the Roman world, unlike uh, other cities that Paul would write to. And what he's saying is, look, just like you have a culture that is your culture in Philippi, speaking Latin that's different from the city that you live in, so it is with you as Christians living in such a way in this world with the hope that you've been given. It's totally different. Now, um, again, I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity, um, both good and bad, to to live in other places. I I got the privilege of living in Italy for three years, England for 14 years. When I was in my time in Italy, one of the things I used to do, like, especially at first, man, I longed for home so much. And, And I remember, like, I would travel an hour and a half by buses and by metro or subway to get into the center of Rome where there was this one little store, grocery store, and it had American goods. It's like a little outpost of America right there. And I remember I would pay $10 for a box of Lucky Charms and smile while I was doing it. And I remember I'd pay $15 for a bag of uh, crusties or whatever that is, that pancake mix. And I'd be like, yep, I'm doing it. I'm taking this home today. Why? 
Because there's something as disgusting as Lucky Charms are to me now. Um, at the time, I was born and bred in a sugary culture of America, right? Of just like, hey, I, I grew up on that stuff. That was who I was. That was my culture. And so I took all this stuff in, and I wanted to continue to propagate that to my kids. Now I wouldn't want them to eat that, just so you know. But anyway, there's something about having a culture, having, a, having uh, an identity like that, that, that Paul is saying here to them, your hope is ultimately not in the culture of this earth. It's in the culture of heaven. And that's where you live. And that's where you dwell spiritually and even physically by expressing it here on earth. And that creates a tension. It creates a tension like uh, on, on uh, what, I think it was Friday. Yes, it was Friday. Um, I was watching USA versus England in the World Cup. And having lived in England for 14 years, I was actually torn. I, now, don't throw stones at me, okay? I am an American citizen. I love America. Just being clear about that. But I did feel a tension because I want them both to win. And thankfully, the greatest thing happened. They tied, okay? That was good for me. But it created a tension in me that was like, hey, who do I want to win here? Who do I want to advance? And in that same way, Paul would tell us that, like, look, you're in Philippi, Philippians. Be there. Feel the tension, but bring the culture of heaven with you. This is your identity. This is the hope that Ultimately, when you're grieved by the world around you, living for the lust, living for the flesh, living for the pleasures of this day, that ultimately you will be able to look to and say, there will be a time, there will be a day when that won't be the case and I'm going to live like that now. My influence, my politics, so to speak, the way I live in life, that is going to be all done through this idea of me being a citizen of heaven, not of this earth. Just for the ability to empathize, I would wish upon all of us that you'd have the opportunity to at least go on a short-term mission trip, go on a long-term mission trip, live in another culture for several years because it's a powerful tool, but you don't have to. You can take God's word at face value and say, look, I'm going to find the DNA of all the culture of God's kingdom, and I'm going to put my hope in that. I'm going to Live as a cross-cultural Christian. The second point I want to uh, give to us today is an anchor for our hope. Um, because ultimately, that first point is that none of the things that we hope in at this time of the year will satisfy us anyway. And so you're better off living out the citizenship you have in heaven. Secondly, uh, that Jesus is a Savior. Okay, um, let's read again 321. It says, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. He's been called right before this a king, king of heaven. He's been called savior. He's been called Christ, which means the anointed king. He's been called the Lord, which means ruler or sovereign. And this is four names that Paul gives in a comprehensive way to give us the weight of what he's trying to tell us here, that Jesus is ultimately the king that we trust in. Now, Israel, in the Old Testament, they got in trouble. Time and time and time again, how? By looking to the kings that were corrupt, that were evil, that were bad, and they trusted them. This is why the Psalms will say things like, don't put your trust in chariots or horses or in princes, but in the name of the Lord your God. 
And, and, and aren't we so tempted as we look at things in this world happening with people and politics, um, we're, we're so tempted to say we need some answer to bring a ruler or to bring rule into this chaos and we need order. What I love in picturing Paul in prison like this is just to realize that Paul would be saying to himself the reality that he would echo later to the Romans in Romans 8.28 where he says what? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that can seem so trite sometimes. But that doesn't make it less true. And the fact that Paul can say this, sat in a prison cell, he say that God is the Lord, the sovereign, the king, the ruler, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and my trust is all in him right now. It, dis- it, it destroys any of my own heart's objections to why I could not put my hope and trust in King Jesus in this moment and season of my life. Most of us have not been on trial, have not been in prison, have not, you know, we, we just struggle with making all the little desires of our life as idols and kings that we bow down to. But Paul literally was under the power of Rome in Roman prison, and he says, no, Christ is subduing all things to himself. You see, the, the providence of God or the sovereignty of God amidst all the human choices that are real and valid, that sovereignty is the pillow that saints lay their head on to go to sleep every night. And so I, I want to offer this as an anchor of hope to your soul right now in whatever season you're in, in, in this Advent season. Please uh, know that this is the reality even if you don't see it, even if all around you, you look and everything looks like prison bars in your life. And maybe that's just internally. I mean, I, I, I know that happens. Like a lot of the times that people struggle during this holiday season, it's just internal things going on. It's, it's shame, it's self-hatred, it's voices, it's things that you hear. And all of that would tell you, guess what? And this is something very common, actually, when you look at the, the theme of uh, self-hatred, if you look at counseling, is that people over and over again, they say, it was my fault, it was my fault, it was my fault, it was my fault, it was my fault. And all I'm here to say is, like, Paul's sitting there in prison, it's not his fault. Now, there are things, as I say, that are our fault in our lives, but there are things that aren't your fault. And, and what I want to say to you is that at the end of the day, no good comes out of that anyway. And Paul has this confident expectation that he won't, be ashamed because Christ is sovereign and king. And even if the situation you find yourself in your life is all your fault, all the choices you made, this promise rings true. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the sin that you did, even the choice you made, even the lack of responsibility, the lack of faithfulness, It does not matter. Even the devil's attacks on your life. God is working all things together for good in your life. And this is an anchor of hope because of King Jesus. Okay, last one. Look at verse 21. It says, Jesus, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Finally, we have this hope. Um, that our body of death and decay will be fixed and the new creation will spring forth in us and, 
in our actual physical reality. Um, and again, I, I don't want to do too much here other than to encourage you. And so look at Romans 8, for example. It says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. They're not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the, of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we're saved. Now hope that's not see, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, the promise of Advent is not just first coming, but it's second coming. And this is why it's so powerful. And this is, that's where this anchor of this idea of hope falls for us this morning, is that the perfect life of King Jesus, the perfect death on our behalf and his resurrection leads for us the gospel promise and hope, just like God promised in the Old Testament to bring Jesus, it leads to us the gospel promise of hope that we will experience the new creation if we hope and trust in him. And so therefore, you will have a brand new body. Now, some of you that are young don't care about this point yet, but I'm telling you, you will. Okay, I am 47 years young, and I'm telling you already, like, I have procedures planned for my gut. I've got a torn shoulder. I've got a, a bum leg. I mean, I've had, you know, it's just, you get to a point in life where you're starting to realize that the body tells the toll, so to speak, of, like, what's going on in your life. And it's not unimportant that we remind ourselves of this anchor of hope in this season, because as I said before, some have had loved ones pass away. I just saw the other day that sadly someone passed away that I knew of cancer. And it's like, this doesn't stop. And Advent, if anything, is a season of waiting and expectation and hope. Yes, for the past, but more for us for the future, for the second coming of Christ where this will be changed. I just want to read one quote here. And this is what a guy named Murray Harris said about the new body and the and the the resurrection that we're going to experience as God's people, this hope we have. He says, Paul is saying then that in place of an earthly body that is always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that's incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form, no more Botox, beautiful in form and appearance with limitless energy, I won't need to take a nap after preaching this sermon. That's great. Limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection transformation, man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit, a body that is invariably responsive to his transformed personality. Boom. Like, that is amazing. I wish I could speak like that, but that's why I read the quote. Like, that is a reality. Our rejuvenation from the Holy Spirit is our hope coming to us in the future. And this is why, as I get ready to close out here, it does no good to fall into the season of Christmas in the way of the world that looks to consume 
rather than to be generous givers like Jesus. Because as C.S. Lewis says, if you aim at heaven, or you aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you'll get neither. So here's the, here's the reality. God has given us so much to hope in, in Jesus Christ. He's given us these anchors, even in just one text that we can unpack this morning. And I pray this, this will start to tease out in your heart and your mind, like, hey, why am I hoping in these other things? Why am I trusting in these other things? That the expectancy for, uh, for Christ would grow in your heart over the Advent season, the Christmas season. Because we're so bad at this. This is why we're taking this time. Because uh, waiting is an art that our age has forgotten. We're, we're not good at this. It's like instant everything. Internet, you know, shopping, whatever we want all the time. And God in his providence may be taking us individually, as a group, as a nation, through a season where, you know what? And he did this already once in, in COVID. You know what? You are going to have to wait you're going to have to wait. You're going to feel like you're in prison. And so the final exhortation this morning is Philippians 3, 13 to 14. What do we do? How do we live this Christian life? How does this hope express itself? And one way that I want to say to you is Philippians 3, 14 to, 13 to 14, excuse me, it says this. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All of this language of hope in Philippians and the New Testament that Paul has written, this idea of this sure hope, Paul says this, what's going to hold you back? And I know, I know we're on Christmas, not on New Year's, but I want us to take the weeks of Advent here, and I want us to think about this. What holds you back is your past, so many times. And Paul gives us this brilliant little insight here that says this is how hope will thrive and live and this is how you will go to the future that God has called you to and you'll do this by forgetting those things that are behind. Now there's value in knowing your story. There's value in knowing where you sit. Paul does this in Philippians. He says, hey, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Benjamite. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like, I know my story. He does this in Romans. He says, I'm, I, I fit within the gospel. This, he, he says in First Timothy, like, yeah, I was a zealot. I was a, a persecutor of the church. He knows who he is. He hasn't forgotten and what God has done. There's value there. But what's not valuable is the constant going back to my parents didn't give me this gift in Christmas, so my life is ruined for the rest of my life. And that's just a trite way to say all of the things that sometimes we think are helpful that we dwell on. And what I love about Advent in this idea of hope is it launches us forward to stick our neck out and say, that's what I need is the prize that Christ is going to give me. And I'm going to strain towards that with all that I am. I'm going to reach forward. Hope is lived out in the present tense and in the future tense, not in the past tense. So I don't know in your situation if God is going to deliver you and you're going to be healthy or have good financial provision or the best presence on Christmas. But I know that God will deliver you in Jesus Christ through his salvation, through his son, if you trust in him. And then you will be able to say, whether I live on or whether I die, my life is to Christ. I live in hope of him 
and you'll radiate with that same confidence that Paul had. And look, I'm the biggest struggler with this. I, I, I love Christmas, but I get, I, I feel melancholic. It's, maybe it's the weather. I don't know what it is, but like I struggle every year. And then I have to get my heart back into this mindset of like the hope that Christ has given. So I pray and hope that you'll do that. We're going to take communion. And um, even that is an expression of our hope. It's saying, Christ, I have made other kings in my life. I have lived for this world's goods and the fleshly mindset. Please help me recognize that you came out of your abundance and everything came and made yourself poor. You dwelled with me as Emmanuel. You died for my sin and you rose from the dead so that I can await your coming. Lord, would you forgive me? Would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? And I, I, I pray that communion this morning will be the beginning of Advent season where we'll start to just say like, hey, Lord, help me to start waiting on you for the next four weeks and not just conform to the citizenship around me, but to your kingdom. So let's pray. God, thank you for Philippians and the joy and the hope and the reality that's in this book. I pray as the next few weeks unfold that you will help us to have our hopes fully set upon you as we wait as we think, as we stop, as we pause and think about your coming in a vulnerable little body, in a prison, so to speak, but yet you lived for all that the Father called you to do. And for us, you endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before you, which was our salvation. And so God, we pray that our hopes would be in you and we turn from all other things that Hold our expectations. Jesus, in your name, amen.